If you would, let's do our Bible study. Let's go to the book of Ruth. That's in the Old Testament after the book of Judges. And this evening what we're going to be doing is we're going to be doing just some biographical character studies and talking about some of the individuals that show up in this book with this idea that there are some times that there are some interviews being conducted. Our thought tonight is God's conducting an interview, that God's looking for people that can do heroic things, unusual interviews. I was reading an article in a book that talked about some of those individuals who conducted interviews. They were in management position, you know, the human resource department and they wrote some of the most interesting interviews that they had. Here is a couple of them. The applicant who is coming to face me, who is the hiring person, the applicant challenged me to an arm-to-arm wrestling competition as if it would have made any difference in whether they got the job or not. Here's one. One gal wore earphones and kept them on at the start of the interview. The music was loud enough that I could hear clearly as I was asking questions. When I asked her to remove the headphones, the applicant explained, it's no problem because I can both listen to you and listen to my music at the same time. She didn't get the job. A bald-headed applicant suddenly excused himself halfway through the interview, then came back a few minutes later wearing his toupee. Evidently, he had forgotten the hairpiece in his car and only realized it during the interview. I could hardly suppress giggling through the rest of the, in- rest of the interview. Here's another one. In the middle of answering my questions, the applicant dozed off. I got up, quietly left the room, and I don't know when they woke up and what happened after that. Here's one from Ohio. When asked why he didn't mark completed high school, the applicant said he never finished high school because he had no chance to do so. He went on to explain he had been kidnapped from his home in Cleveland during his senior year by some unknown people. The kidnappers took him to a house in Mexico, somewhere where they kept him locked in the closet for the last two years. He never knew who they were or what they wanted, and he just recently escaped, just last week in fact, and snuck back into the United States and, and was now looking for a job. Oh yeah, okay, that really happened. Yeah, it really happened. Did you report any of this to the police? No, I don't want to get anybody in trouble. He didn't get the job either. So strange things. I had the privilege of doing interviewing for people when I was in seminary. One of my jobs was uh, was personnel manager for a company. And one fellow I remember came in for the interview. He came from the job he was working, which was working and digging and repairing septic tanks. When he came in, he came straight from the job. Work boots and all, and he didn't leave it inside the car. He wore it into the office where we were doing the interview. And so as I conducted the interview and kept my my nose plugged most of the time, um, he just said, hey, you just have to excuse me. This is the way I I didn't think you would would mind, you know, because maybe first impressions don't matter. The reality is... First impressions do matter. He didn't get the job either. So what we're doing this evening is we're looking and saying, okay, what if God is doing an interview and he's looking for those peoples like, like you? He's going through the group and he's saying, okay, where are these peoples I can use? What exactly is God looking for? So tonight I want to take it from that perspective and just walk through and using the characters from chapters 1 and 2 in the book of Ruth and point out who are the heroic characters and what characteristic traits did they possess. Did they portray that might encourage us. And so basically what we're doing is we're saying, okay, these people lived there. What were they like? Were they heroic characters that God could use? Let's start with the first one, where we start with chapter 1, verse 1. And we're introduced to a gentleman who is a Jewish individual. His name is Elimelech. We we talked about him last week. What do you know about this man? Anybody remember what his name means? Elimelech, my God is 
king. Okay. Well, how did, was he a godly man or a carnal man? Carnal. Carnal. Okay. He's the individual who the story talks about. He grew up in a fruitful region that is suffering a famine. But he leaves the region and goes to Moab. Good or bad thing to do? Bad thing. Why? God's word clearly says you don't move to Moab. You stay out of there and you don't have any connection with him. But he migrates there, takes his wife, takes his young sons with him, and he goes over to that area just because there's a famine. He thinks it's legitimate, but the problem is he's just not trusting the Lord. And he plans on not staying there very long because we know the word used, he sojourned there, that idea of staying a temporary time. He moved into the countryside with the idea that we're going to keep separated. But then shortly thereafter, when his boys get old enough, what do they do? They marry the Moabites. So they've been infested, infected by that. And then he ends up dying there and dying in the land of Moab. And then his sons, who that they grew up in that region, they end up marrying the Moabites. There is no child born to either one of these guys, which is indicative. There could be that hand of the Lord working in chastisement, which was typical in the Old Testament era. And as a result, they end up dying too. So that's Elimelech. Then the rest of the chapter deals a lot with his wife, his widow who is left behind. His widow and then the two boys' widows. We read their story. And as we're going through, just kind of keep in, and in your mind, keep asking yourself, what character traits do we see here? What characteristics? So we're going to start, and we're going to go down to about verse 6, where all of a sudden we pick up the story where we, it's about Naomi. And when she arose with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab how the Lord had visited his people, that's people back in Israel, giving them bread. Wherefore she went forth of the place where she was, and her two daughter-in-laws with her. And they went on the way to return unto the land of Judah. And Naomi said unto her two daughter-in-laws, Go, return each, of, each to her mother's house, and the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband." Then she kissed them, they lifted up their voice, they wept, and they said unto her, Surely we will return with you unto your people. Naomi said, Turn again, my daughters, why will you go with me? Are there yet any more sons in my womb, that they may be your husbands? Turn again, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say, I have hope, if I should have an husband also tonight, and should also bear sons, would you tarry for them till they were fully grown? Would you stay for them from having for them from having husbands? No. My daughters, for it grieves me much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord is gone out against me. And they lifted up their voice and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother in law, but Ruth clave unto her. And Ruth said, or Naomi said, Behold, your sister in law is gone back unto her people and unto her gods. Return thou after thy sister in law. And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part you from me. When she saw, that is Naomi, saw that Ruth was steadfastly minded to go with her, then she left speaking unto her. And so they too went until they came to Bethlehem. And it came to pass when they were come to Bethlehem that all the city was, oops, excuse me, several pages went. 
All the city was moved about them, and they said, Is this Naomi? And she said unto them, Call me not Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Why then call ye me Na- why why then call you me Naomi, seeing the Lord hath testified against me, and the Almighty hath afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter in law, with her, which returned out of the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of the barley harvest, and it's really interesting what unfolds there. But let's just get a sample of what is this woman like. If you had to give words that described her, what would you put down? What type of, what type of presence is she? What type of display is she giving? Bitter? Okay. Discouraged? Okay. I use that term. I'm going to put it this. She is the defeated believer. She is just a picture. Now, she's a believer, but she is a defeated person. She's the person that you go, in fact, she says, okay, my name is no longer Naomi. Naomi means, any of you have the footnotes? You have your, the marginal notes? What's Naomi mean? Okay, pleasant or joyous. What's Mara mean? Bitter. Okay, so she's saying, don't call me a pleasant person anymore. Call me a bitter person. Call me an angry person, a discouraged person. In fact, if we go back and revisit verses 10 and 11, leave me, leave me, leave me. She is one that, she doesn't want to be around people anymore. She wants to be by herself. Should she be all alone, traveling 60 miles without a whole lot of sustenance, going back through a dangerous territory? The answer is no. But she doesn't want to be around people. Have you ever run into this type of individual? Some of you, it's starting to remind you of somebody who's a bitter person who doesn't want to be around individuals. They focus only upon their losses. That all she sees is, you know, I lost this, I lost this. And she doesn't mention any of the blessings she has. Now, I understand she suffered great loss. No, I'm not trying to minimize that. She lost her husband. She lost her son. She lost her second son. But what does she still have? She's got the daughter-in-laws. What else does she have? She's got her faith. She still has her God. She still has her own life. But she doesn't focus on that. She only focuses on only what she has lost, what isn't there anymore. Okay? And so she's become very bitter. Let's, let's do a little bit, a little bit further. Okay? She's, she's got the opportunity to repent and get back into the country. But when she's going, she's very negative. Very negative about her future. She's very negative about her daughter-in-law's future. She's the type of person that if you say, hey, that's a beautiful dress, she's going to tell you what's wrong with it. That's, a, that's just, you know, that is such a, uh, such a nice whatever. She's going to find flaw in it. She is extremely negative, very pessimistic. She's defeated. She's a discouraged individual. In fact, she is an individual that is in her self-pity, okay? This, this is an amazing thought. In her self-pity and in her discouragement, she tells her daughters to return unto their own parents, their own mothers, and to their own gods, why is she telling her daughter-in-laws, go back to serving Chemosh, who is a god that you worship by child sacrifice? That's why of all the tribes around, they were not to go and have anything to do with the Moabites because they were some of the most heinous, paganist type of religious people. But she's encouraging her daughter-in-laws to go back to their former god. That's terrible. Terrible situation, but she's so negative. And she's only caught up in her own self-pity. In her own self-pity, she rewrites her history. She says in this passage, I went out full. If she really thought she went out full, she wouldn't have left Israel. Right? 
Why did they leave Israel in the first place? They thought they were empty. There was nothing there. So now, do you ever run into people who do this? They rewrite their story to play into their current emotions? Well, that's what she's doing. She's saying, I went out full. No, but I'm now coming back empty. Let me ask you this. How would you like to be Ruth standing there listening to your mother-in-law tell her friends, I went out full and now I've come back totally empty? How does that make Ruth feel standing there? Yes, no? Does that make sense? Okay, here she is. She's negative even towards the individual who's come back with her. She's calling her basically a nothing. She forgot about Ruth and the blessing of Ruth, who's traveled, who's cleaved unto her, who stayed under her. This woman is extremely defeated. That if you try to convince her that God is blessing, she's going to find something wrong. Now, again, I ask you, have you ever run into this type of person? And after a while, what do you want to do? I just want to, okay, I'll let you sit there, Elijah, in your pity, and you can just sit there in the cave and, you know, be by yourself, if that's what you really want. And so here she is. She, she, you know, give her a positive. She still believes in a God. She still believes in the Lord. She brings up the Lord. In fact, she says to her daughters, daughter-in-laws, she says that, I believe God, in verse 8, I want him to bless you. Isn't that interesting? She says that her God is against her. She says it three times in the text. God is against me. The hand of the Lord is against me. He has afflicted me. And so she's thinking God is totally against her, and she believes God can bless other people, but not her. God can bless you daughter-in-laws when you go back to your former gods. That doesn't make sense. But she's telling them you know, that God can bless you, but God's, not, God's against me. And in her mind, even though she believes in God, she doesn't see anything, anything good about her circumstances, even though we we know clearly God is chastening, God is redirecting, trying to bring her back in the land. She doesn't see any good and any profit in this. And so she's very negative about it. And there is nothing in her words where she says, I have done anything wrong. That's a defeated believer. Typically, when you deal with those type of individuals, it is extremely hard because they are extremely negative, but they will not take ownership of their choices that may have put them in those situations. Is she one that you would want to employ in Christian service? Okay, let's make her the teacher. She'll, she'll tell the other ladies how to live. And you would say, uh-uh. No, we're not. And so this isn't at this moment in her life. She is not an outstanding character. Yes, I give you the I give you, you know, that she is willing to go back to the land of Israel. That's a positive. But outside of that, I don't see anything there. I see nothing there at this moment in her life where she's at. I see nothing that is that is commendable. That is something that we want to emulate is nothing there that we would say she's a heroic figure at this moment. She is not. But then the story continues and has told us about the one daughter-in-law who stays. And you obviously know. You've read it. You know the end of the story already. And it's even named after her. This is the heroine of the story. Here we go. Now we start talking about Naomi's second daughter-in-law, Naomi, that she's a Moabite girl, but she is a commendable gal. She's commendable in so many ways. As you start going through the story, it says that she clave unto her mother-in-law. She entreated her, do not make me leave you. And finally, Naomi sees she is steadfast. She is not going to depart. This gal is loyal to family, to her mother-in-law. 
This gal is extremely a dedicated individual. This one is going to make a very hard decision. The hard decision is she's going to leave Israel, uh, leave Moabite and, uh, and Moab, excuse me, and go with her mother-in-law. And she says, "Your God shall be my God." Oh wow, we like that, but and it is commendable. But let's pause for a second and let's ask ourselves the question: Why would this be so hard for Ruth to do? To all of a sudden leave and go to Israel and make Jehovah her God. Why would that be a hard decision for that young lady? She's going to leave everything she knows. Any other reasons? That's, that it's one of them. Yes. Why is it a difficult decision? What's that? She's going to be a foreigner in the land. Okay? That's going to come out in the next chapter. Very clearly a word that's used that she says, I'm a strange woman. It's an interesting correlation of how that's viewed. What else do you have? What's that? She could be killed. Why would that happen? Yeah, yeah. This is, she doesn't know how the Jews are going to respond to her. She has no clue. Okay? From a human perspective, what's her future prospects? What, what do you mean? Why not good? She has no idea if they're going to accept her. Chances are... She's the foreigner. She's a Moabite. And the Old Testament had, had basically said, don't attach to those individuals. So what's the chance of her getting married? From a human perspective. Pretty low, right? So you start looking and saying, this is going to be very tough. She's going to have to leave her mother because Naomi said, go back to your mother's. Her family's there. It's clear that she, she has relatives. But Naomi says, go back and says, no. She's got to give up her country, her citizenship. She's got to give up her culture. And by the way, we know that that's difficult. We know that's true. Because we feel for our missionaries, and many of us, if we had the opportunity, we would hesitate to go to a foreign land and live there permanently. It's a nice place to visit, but I wouldn't want to live there because the challenges. Now, she's going to do that. She doesn't know exactly how the Jews will respond. She doesn't know if her own people, if they would be commending her, if she were to come back later on after she got tired of the situation. She's got to give up her, her past religions. She's got to give up all of that. And she's going to follow. And this is very hard. For you and I sitting here this evening, we sometimes, we minimize this. But if we remember individuals and look at some of the folk who come through and get baptized, in Bible times and in our culture at times, that's a big step. Because that is a public declaration, I'm giving up my church that I grew up in. I'm giving up that type of thing. And for some people, that means I'm giving up some family ties. Our family always went to that church. They've always done that. And now I'm going to follow Jesus Christ. Does that happen today for some people, that it's very difficult? The answer is yes. Okay, so she probably could, more likely, the chances, humanly speaking, not remarry, have a little security. Life's going to be pretty difficult for this gal. And on top of that, to make it even more difficult, you know, and, and I, don't mean, I don't mean to be picking on her, but who does she have to care for? She's got to care for a difficult person. That's a wonderful way of putting it. She's got to care for a bitter elderly woman. That, did she really want her to go with her? How would you have to be the caretaker of somebody who doesn't want you to be around? So all of this is complicated, and it's convoluted as the story unfolds. But she insists, she says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dedicate to the Lord. Interesting, watch the conversation, go return unto your gods. 
That's what she's told. Ruth says, your God shall be my God. Watch and look at your Bible. All of a sudden, there is a change in the way they refer to God. Watch how it unfolds. Ruth says, she says in verse 17, you have capital L-O-R-D in verse 17, where she says, the Lord do so to me and more also. Is yours in in your translation? Is it capital L, capital O-R-D? Yes, which means Jehovah. She is using the personal name, the name that was, okay, the Jews called him this. She has an awareness of him. She is making this extremely personal. And so she knows about this. She knows that there's this, some, you know, for as negative as the Elimelech's family has been, she's been exposed to some thoughts about Jehovah. She has an awareness to the idea. She has seen what he could do, and she adopts him as her God. This holy God who chastens, she understands his sovereignty, his authority, his omnipresence beyond your God's going to be. Wherever I go, he's going to be my God. And so here she is making a step of faith, a journey of faith. And so the story unfolds that she starts going back, uh, or she does go back with Naomi, and she enters into Israel. Let's read part of chapter 2 to continue. Now we're talking about Ruth. I want you, as I'm going through and reading it, just in your mind go, hey, here's a character trait. Here's a character trait. Here's something that's positive about her. Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's, a mighty man of wealth, of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. Ruth the Moabitess said unto Naomi, let now go... Let me now go to the field, glean the ears of corn after him in whose sight I shall find grace. And she said, Go. And she went and came and gleaned in the fields after the reapers. And it happened that she lighted on the part of the field belonging unto Boaz, who was the kindred of Elimelech. She doesn't know all this. God's giving you background information. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said unto the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. And then said Boaz unto his servant, that was set over the reapers. Whose damsel is this one? The servant that was set over the reapers answered and said, It is the Moabite, yeah, you can read it, damsel that came back with Naomi out of the country of Moab. And she said, I pray you, let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and hath continued even from the morning until now that she tarries a little in, in the house. Then said Boaz unto Ruth, Hearest thou not, my daughter? Go not to glean in another field, neither go hence, but abide here fast by my maidens. Let thine eyes be in the field that they do reap, and go thou after them. Have I not charged the young men that they shall not touch you? And when you are thirsty, go unto the vessels, and drink of that which the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowed herself to the ground, and said unto him, Why have I found grace in your eyes, that you should take knowledge of me, seeing I am a stranger? And Boaz answered and said unto her, It hath been fully shown to me all that you have done unto your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, and how you have left your father and your mother and the land of your nativity, and are come unto a people which thou knewest not heretofore. The Lord recompense thy work, and a full reward be given to you of the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you are come to trust. Then she said, Let me find favor in in thy sight, my Lord, for that you have comforted me, and for that you have spoken friendly unto thy handmaid, though I be not like unto one of your handmaidens. 
And Boaz said unto her, At mealtime, come thou hither, and eat of the bread, and dip thy morsel in the vinegar. And she sat beside the reapers, and he reached her parched corn. And she did eat, and was sufficed, and filled, and left. And when she was risen up to glean, Boaz commanded the young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and reproach her not. And let fall also some of the handfuls on purpose for her, and leave them, that she may glean them, and rebuke her not. So she gleaned in the field until evening, and beat out that she had gleaned, and it was but an ephah of barley. And she took it up, and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw that she had gleaned. And she brought forth, and gave to her that that she had reserved after she had been filled by that which Boaz had given her. And her mother-in-law said unto her, Where have you gleaned today, and where wroughtest thou? Blessed be he that did take knowledge of you. And she showed her mom-in-law with whom she had wrought, and said, This man's name was Boaz, I wrought today. And Naomi went on and on. And so you have this conversation. Watch her faith. Watch what happened. She's willing to join Jehovah's people, even though it meant she's going to be rejected. And she was somewhat questioned. They did say, she's the Moabite, she's the stranger. I'll show you that in a moment. Okay, she came to be known. Her testimony, Boaz says, I have heard about you. I have heard how you've come under the wings of Jehovah. So here she is. Her faith is being talked about. She's a, she's a new believer. But she's making an impact. She's making a reputation for herself. And then she demonstrates godly virtues. As we just read that through, what stands out about her day-to-day conduct, her everyday virtues that are commendable? Anything? Uh, go ahead. Her initiative? How so? Okay, good. What did you say over here? She's a hard worker. What else do you have? She's what? How did you get that? Very good. Anything else that caught you, your attention? Where'd you, how'd you get that? She even brings some of what Boaz gave her for lunch. She brought that special lunch back to her mom-in-law. By the way, remember, what is her mom-in-law? A difficult person. And she's being very nice to this difficult person. So if we start laying out some of these virtues, would you say that she's generous? To a flaw. Okay? Extremely generous. She left everything to care for a mom-in-law who the mom-in-law didn't really elevate her because when mom-in-law is talking amongst her friends, she says, I'm here all by myself and totally forgot about Ruth. Ruth had left everything for this mom-in-law. And so she's generous to this woman who is a tough woman to get. She works hard, as Mike pointed out. She works hard from morning until evening. And then if you look at the very last verse of the chapter, she does this day after day throughout the rest of the, the harvest season. She, as you mentioned, she kept part of that special lunch that Boaz gave her. She took it home. It's like, you know how some of you, you get a special treat, something you know, that you got, you're going to take it home and share it because you know, the family member wasn't there to enjoy it. She did it day after day. She's responsible. This goes to what you had said, Stace, that in her respectfulness, it is interesting that as Boaz asks his, his foreman, okay, who's this woman? The foreman relates that Naomi came and asked for permission. Naomi just didn't jump in. She asked for permission. Did you catch that? That he says she came and she asked, can I glean in the fields? So she asked for it. And then when Boaz comes, as you said, she bows down, shows great respect towards Boaz. She is an individual who's not afraid of working. 
We already saw that. One of the things you want to add to it, when it gives you the idea of what she is doing, it talks about how she has an ephah. She, by the end of the day, has 30 pounds of, of grain that she's gotten out. She's done a pretty good job for herself. She's done, a, you know, uh, done well. And um, she realizes that even though I'm, I'm a charity case, and understand, in those days, if this were our field, you who were the regular workers, you would get the cream of the crop and you would leave the edges of the field for the widow ladies or others who are the poor. And they would be able to glean at the edges of the field and get some of the leftovers. And so what happens here is she realizes charity doesn't mean I have to sit down and wait for them to give it to me. Charity means they're helping me, but I have to do some work. Is that a concept we should reinstitute? Yeah, in some of the public arena. She shows great humility. The words that she uses that you wouldn't catch, unless some of you in your translation, it points out, but it wouldn't stand out typically. She uses a different word when she says, when it talks to herself, a handmaid, not like unto your handmaids or your workers. She uses a different term to indicate, I am lower than your employees who are working the field. And so she makes it very clear that she doesn't put herself on the same par she puts herself on a different classification, but it's a humble classification. It's not a derogatory way, it's a positive way. In fact, she's enthusiastic over the blessings that she talks about how you have shown grace to me this day. And she's excited that, that she's being benefited, that she is being treated well. And so she understands that. And in fact, when she goes home, she has a spirit of enthusiasm. Look what God has provided for me. Look at it, we've got these 30 pounds of grain. And she's positive. Notice the immediate effect that she is having on her mom-in-law. Her mom-in-law is starting to rethink her bitterness. Her mom-in-law is starting to change and starting to all of a sudden say, wait a minute, I see. And, and it's not stated clear, you know, that she sees it, but you see the providential hand of God working in this story. That she so happened to come to the field of Boaz, she so happens to have conversation with Boaz, Boaz just so happens to say, drop some extra grain for her, and mom-in-law finds out and says, oh, he's a relative of ours. And mom-in-law starts playing matchmaker, matchmaker, thinking in her mind, but she realizes there is a providential hand here that God hasn't totally abandoned me. She is starting to rethink, can you have a positive effect upon somebody who's defeated by you maintaining your faith and your loyalties to God? The answer is yes. There's a contagiousness that all of a sudden starts here, that all of a sudden Mara is talking about the blessings of the Lord that happen. And so that idea, that spiritual enthusiasm. So I look and I think Naomi is just this outstanding heroic character. I know that because of the rest of the story. You do too. But there's all these, these characteristics and these traits. But introduced into the story was the heroic man, Boaz. What do you know about Boaz? If we're just going to fill out your blanks here, uh, not blanks, but the, the section. What do you know about Boaz? Okay, he's wealthy. He, what did you say? He's well off. Okay. What else do you know about him? Okay, he's kind. He's respected. How do you know that? The way his servants respond to him. The way his servants respond to him. Okay, they listen to him. Okay. Did you see anything about his spiritual character? Did it stand out? Anything that he, that he does spiritually? 
Did you catch any of it? I have you at a disadvantage. Okay, I, I was able to focus on it for a long time. Yeah, what would you say, Bob? Okay, okay, that's, that's definitely a part of it. Let's, let's walk through. Okay, we know he's a Jewish prince. Okay, he's the prince of the story. He's a mighty man. The word that talks about in verse... In verse uh, um, the mighty man in verse 1. In verse 1, that mighty man shows up several times back in this era of time. It could be a mighty warrior. It could be somebody who is influential. It could be money. It could be all of them blend together. So it gives you an idea that he is, as you have said, a distinguished character in the community. So we go a little bit further. He's a wealthy landowner. As you said, he's a relative of Elimelech. That plays into the rest of the story because we're not hitting it yet, but what, char- what trait what relationship comes up later on in their culture that plays into this? The kinsman redeemer. Okay, we'll come back to that when we go through. He has an uncommon, an uncommon and strong faith in the Lord. How do we know that? Do you remember, do you remember now this is in the days of the judges. Okay, I'm going to go to the, to the cultural age, not the season. It's in the day of the judges. It is in time period when every man does that which is right, and so on. So real strong faith isn't common, okay? It isn't the norm, it's the abnormal. But this guy has abnormal faith. How do we know that? What is his first words out of his mouth when he comes to the field that day? Jehovah be with you. His greeting is a spiritual greeting. And their response, his servant's response... Jehovah, yeah, bless you as well. And so his faith is the very words that he speaks. Um, you, you know, in, in this setting, we're talking about it. There's, um, in this time period, remember that we talked about this last week, they're tolerating paganism in Bethlehem, in their area. If this, if is it the same decade? I don't know. But in that same period, general time period, the Bethlehem is a spot where there is a priest that comes, a descendant of Moses, and he's for hire. And he is following after other idols. That's in Bethlehem. The rest of the townspeople didn't do anything about the priest. When he left for hire to go and, and uh, sold out to another person and left the area, the Bethlehemite people, do you remember what their response was? They were sad that he left. Okay, and so you have in the, this influence in their society at that moment, the structure, he says, the Lord be with you when, when there's this response that, that's very emphatic. He is, Bob, you said he's following the word of God. Back in the book of Leviticus, in the book of Deuteronomy, the landowners, what were they supposed to do for the widows? They were to leave portions of the field for those widows. If, if you're to leave a portion of the field, what does that do to your profits? Is that cutting back into your profits? It is. But what are you supposed to do? Do it. Do it. Now, Elimelech, did he follow the word? The answer was no. Is Boaz following the word? Yes. And not only is he following the word, what is he going to say to his servants? Do even more. Do even more for this woman. So it's not the norm of the time, and it's not the best business practices, especially when you think at this time, there's raids going on. There's famines that have hit this land at times. This is the period of up and down, up and down, up and down. And God, God allows then this, um, this activity of chastisement. But Boaz is still going to follow the word of God, even though the time. So he's obedient, and then in his everyday life, 
okay, this mature believer, he is also extremely generous. He cared for those with the genuine needs. He puts the, tells them in the field to be charitable. He insists that Ruth stay right there in his portion. He's not bothered by a Moabite woman, a foreigner being there. He even says, hey, drink from the water where my men drink. Hey, listen, back in Bible days, they had some of those laws, those quote-unquote Jim Crow laws that said you don't share a fountain with somebody of a di- of the different race, quote-unquote race. You don't share with a foreigner. He is not like this at all. He is this unprejudiced individual and says you can even drink from where we drink. And so here's an individual. He invites her to share some of his own food. He directs his men to give extra grain. This guy is extremely charitable. He is following what the Word of God is talking about. Now, I know some of this isn't written until later, but it's that same attitude that blesses he that considers the poor. The liberal soul shall be made fat. He that has a bountiful eye shall be blessed. And so those principles are being portrayed even before it's being codified in Scripture. This guy is doing it. Extremely generous individual. Great characteristic. His conduct towards others, he's gracious towards his employees, where he is greeting them. He's humble enough to serve others. Other people. He's an individual. He says, I want you to protect Ruth, this foreigner. And remember, this is a time when, you know, she's, she could be, she could be taken advantage of. And yet he's, his, his everyday, and I'm going to, I'm going to mix terms, his Christianity, his Judaism, but his, his Christianity is on display, not just at worship. It's on display at work. Isn't that commendable? Yes, no. Isn't that what we should be? That our, that our Christianity isn't just here, but it shows up tomorrow morning. And it shows up on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday when we're at a workplace. That's where the real living of Christianity, that's what he calls us, that we're supposed to be walking wisdom towards them that are without when. On Sunday? No, because we're not engaging a lot of folk who are without. That is with this idea that entertaining strangers, not just on the weekend, but during the times that you're living day by day. So he's an extremely commendable character. I think this is an amazing attribute, characteristic of him. He's excited about this girl coming to know the Lord. How she's stepping out in her faith. He's enthused that she's coming to know the Lord. And that's amazing because she's not a Jew. But he's excited. She's a Moabite, an enemy. Some of her people have invaded during the book of Judges. So this is like, we've just had war against them not too long ago. But she's coming to faith, and I'm excited. And he doesn't hold it against her. She is referred to... And uh, as being the Moabitess of Moab, it's not like she's, you know, when the servant said, he asked the servant, who is she? She's the Moabitess of Moab. Why does he have to say it twice? I mean, once was enough. But it's emphatic. It's just telling us this is what he thought of her. And she picked up on that. Because when, no, when Boaz is talking to her, she describes herself where she says, I am a stranger. To just give you a sense of what the word is that she uses, that word shows up talking in the book of Proverbs in a very negative way. And she is revealing that I am being perceived like this. It shows up in Proverbs, the strange woman, the strange woman, the strange woman. Yeah, it can be foreigner, but it also has a connotation. She is an immoral woman. Do you get the sense of what's happening here? 
is that the people who are standing by are saying, she's a Moabite of the Moab, she's a Moabitess of Moab. And she says, they're treating me like I'm a wicked woman. That's why I'm being viewed. Maybe it happened when, and we don't know any more than when it occurred. Maybe it happened when she get water. Maybe when she went to the well, the others kind of did what they did with the woman at the well. They stood back. Jews wouldn't do that, would they? Christians would never do that, would they? And so here she is. She's getting that impression. She's feeling that. She's got that pressure that, that's there. And so here we got these characters who he is not displaying any prejudice, prejudice. He is displaying just great generosity. So what are we going to glean from this story? Let me just throw some thoughts as we wrap up. Spiritual heroes come from all walks of life and backgrounds. And we're talking about Boaz and, and Ruth as we go through. And as we look at them, if we were to chart this, if we were to say, write everything you know about Boaz, what do you have about Ruth, we would find contrast all the way through. That, okay, they're, they're on totally different ends of the spectrum. Okay? Their heritage, their religious, they well-known, look down upon the community, a wealthy person, a poor person. And, in fact, she is just a babe in the Lord. He obviously has generations of training. He's got this spiritual heritage. But she's a babe in the Lord. Spiritual heroes can come in any form of background, but also at any age spiritually. You don't have to be X amount old in the Lord before God can use you. God can use you anytime, as long as you're dedicated to the Lord. But they do portray similar characteristics, similar traits that are very common, such as a growing faith. They both have this in a culture that isn't helping them. They're growing in the faith. They are both showing godly traits every day in their life. We've highlighted, you've said several of those godly traits that are very, that are talked about in Second Peter, where he says, add to your faith virtue, and unto virtue knowledge, and unto knowledge goodness, and kindness, and patience. And these people have all this that you've already pointed out. That it is, it is being displayed in their work day, in their daily uh, interaction with other individuals. So it's a tremendous story. It's got some really good stuff there that is challenging that says, hey, if God's conducting an interview and looking for heroic characters, he found them. But the question is, what about finding you? What about you? Do you portray this growing faith? Are you portraying the humility? Do you portray the generosity? Do you portray that enthusiasm about others coming to know the Lord? You say, well, I hope so. Well, God knows, and you kind of know too. And so here's where I want to conclude this, is God is looking for heroic figures. If you want to be one that's used by God, then apply this passage within your heart. Apply within Walk out this week and say, I'm going to build my faith. Walk out this week and say, I'm going to show generosity. I'm going to show this humility, this respect. I'm going to show some of these virtues. Because those are character traits that God is looking for, and then He can use me in a way that He hasn't used me before. Father, I pray that You would help us, not just to hear, but to heed the Word and to live it. Thank You for this example of these people. Help us to be individuals that despite what others say, we are faithful to you and we grow day by day by day. We pray, help us to live out our faith tomorrow in the workplace, at home, where it counts within our neighborhood. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.